so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Shout out to everybody who is with us today in person and those joining us online. So one of my favorite uh, memories during COVID, one of the favorite things I remember that happened is really how many businesses got really creative to avoid being closed. So there were a lot of businesses who unfortunately did not survive COVID and businesses, especially those who realized that their entire business model depended on people coming in, really needed to pivot in order to stay current during the lockdown. So there was one pizzeria that really made some bold moves, Pasquale's Pizza and Wings. So Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, for those of you who have not heard of them yet, <laughs> you will, hopefully they'll ring true in just a little bit. Um, they were killing it on Grubhub and on Seamless, and they had really good reviews, and they were feeding hungry New Yorkers who were hunkering down and sheltering in place. Now, when I hear the word Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, I think of an old Italian man with hairy arms who's been spinning pizzas for like 30 years, who's inherited this business from his father, and they have a thick Italian accent, and they're serving out some of the best pizza that New York offers. That was not the case. People were going online to order Pasquale's, and what they were actually getting was Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese rebranded itself as Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, and people thought that they were getting a New York delicacy, and they were getting the big rat himself. Now, no shade to Chuck E. Cheese. I went there on Friday uh, for a birthday party, and I definitely did bust down a slice. Um, but when you dream of a New York slice of pizza, I hope and pray that your heart desires more than Chuck E. Cheese. God has more for you than that. Now, if you were to say, like, the word Chuck E. Cheese and pizza next to each other, like, when you think of pizza, you don't think about that. Yes, technically, they have the same association of ingredients, but everybody knows that when you think of a New York slice of pizza, you're not thinking about Chuck E. Cheese. So ABC News and, another, and a number of news organizations uh, did a series on um, this, did a whole story on this set of, um, on Chuck E. Cheese, rebranding itself as uh, Pasquale's. And what they were hoping to do was warn New Yorkers in a buyer beware series that this, although you are hoping to get pizza, you're actually getting something much different. Now, we're, we're starting this brand new series on the book of Galatians. And in many ways, Galatians is its own breaking news from the Apostle Paul himself, who's doing an expose, and he is uncovering for us that there's a lot of people who have crept in and started to teach people at these churches about something called the gospel, about Christianity. And Paul says, what they're saying from a distance, it kind of sounds like Christianity. It kind of has some of the same ingredients as Christianity, but it is not the gospel. And Paul writes this impassioned letter to the church of Galatia to correct them and to let them know that what they are receiving is something extremely dangerous. Now, this letter of Galatians is not trivial about something about like pizza. It's about the essence of what Christianity is. And so our hope as we go through this series of, uh, in the book of Galatians for the next number of months is that you and I would develop a fluency for what the gospel is. Now, when I say what is the gospel, for some of you, you think about 
a genre of music. Uh, for others of you, you think about a quote that you've read a little while ago. And my goal today is not that you walk away with a better definition of what the gospel is, but a fluency, something that permeates your entire life and soul, and it oozes out of you. And it is the real, true essence of what Christianity truly is. Uh, years ago, when I was practicing law, I realized that I could make more money as a public defender if I got certified fluent in Spanish. And so the cases I was doing all over uh, New York, um, if you don't need an interpreter, they assign you more cases. And so I went to Cuernavaca, Mexico. You like that, right? Um, and um, <laughs> don't test me in the hallway because I'm a little rusty. I had to practice that a couple of times uh, this morning. Um, so I went to Cuernavaca, and we were... Um, I was in class like all day, every day, from like 9 till 6 p.m., studying Spanish for lawyers. And the first week, I would go home uh, to the home that we were uh, living in, and I would just have a headache. And I would just like, please, somebody give me English, please. By the end of the time in Cuernavaca, I remember like watching TV and dreaming almost in Spanish. It was like starting to ooze out of me. For those of you who are fluent in Spanish or Korean or another language, you know that the language that you are actually fluent in is not something that you have to go to Google Translate to look up. It just oozes out of you. So Paul writes this letter in Galatia, uh, of Galatians to help shape these groups of churches so that the real gospel would ooze out of them. Not just so that they could recite a quote here and there or pass some, some form of a Christian test, but that it would be something that lives on the inside of them. Uh, my cousin from Jamaica, my wife's cousin from Jamaica, lives with us um, now, and uh, it's always funny, whenever I hear her talking to the boys, there's the Americanized version, and then that's when the patois comes out. And I'm like, yeah, when the patois comes out, y'all better shape up. She's not playing around no more. It just kind of like oozes out of her at all random moments. And as a pastor, quite honestly, I don't want people so formed in their head. I don't really care about what you can recite. I want you to live a life that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is oozing out of you. It's oozing out of you at work. It's oozing out of you in your friendships. It's oozing out of you when you're dealing with your knucklehead roommate. It's oozing out of you as you deal with your parents and the issues of your past. It's oozing out of you on Friday night. It's oozing out of you on Tuesday morning that the gospel has permeated your being in such a way that it changes everything about you because that's what it's intended to do. But first, we need to address the bootleg versions of the gospel that Paul is talking about here in, in, in uh, Galatians 1. Now, essentially what Paul does in this first chapter of Galatians is Paul is trying to address two really huge errors that were occurring in his day. Two things that kind of resembled the gospel. Two things that kind of looked like Christianity, and to the untrained eye, people were starting to fall for the okidote. So Paul writes this letter to say, be careful for these things because these are not Christianity. This is not the gospel. The two errors that Paul is trying to come against are relativism and moralism. Now, my definition of this is that relativism says, because we're saved, we don't have to be good. It don't matter what you do. Moralism says that we, ha we have to be good in order to be saved. 
that really what Christianity is all about is like you being better, you being a better person and you doing better, do better than you did yesterday. Now, there was a, a, an ancient church father named Tertullian in uh, Africa, in Carthage. He said this one quote that I've loved and used a number of times. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. So for those of you who know uh, the account of the crucifixion, Jesus was crucified on a hill, and there were two thieves beside him, one on his left and one on his right. And what Tertullian says is that just like Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the gospel is being crucified between moralism and relativism. From a distance, they all look like something is hanging on the cross, but when you get up close, you see that one of them is, this, is the holy, precious Son of God, and the other are two thieves dying for their own sins. So let me read a scripture for all of us that will frame the rest of our time together today. It's Galatians 1, and we'll be in the scripture all day. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So from the gate, Paul is really writing this letter with a lot of passion to correct some errors that he was seeing happen in the church. So Galatia was a province. It was a region. It's almost like Paul saying to the, uh, to the churches of New York City, Manhattan and Brooklyn, the Bronx and Queens, I don't think he would include Staten Island. That's petty. That was very petty. I'm sorry. <laughs> you all deserve better than that. But I'm not better just yet. I, God is working on me. So Paul is writing this letter to these provinces, uh, to this province of Galatia and all of these different churches that are in this region. And Paul himself helped to start this church. And Paul has a burden for the work that he started. The work that he started was being perverted by people who were coming up and preaching a different message, which Paul says is not the gospel at all. And people were falling away from this movement. So Christianity started as a movement initially. And the first batch of Christians, the majority of them were what is referred to as Jewish Christians. And in the New Testament, you see two groups of Christians. They both encompass big, broad groups of people. One are Jews and the other one are Gentiles. Jews are people who observed, who were born Jewish, observed the law, were circumcised, were brought up in the way of Judaism, and then these groups of people, a lot of these Jews, would later turn to follow Jesus and place their faith in him. 
there was another group of people who were Gentile Christians. And at the time of this writing, half of the church was split. Half of them were Gentile Christians. They were from Greece or Rome or somewhere that they did not grow up in Jewish households. They were not brought up in the ways of circumcision and, and the Jewish feasts and Yom Kippur and all these holy days. And essentially what was happening in Galatia was that there was a group of leaders, a group of teachers who were starting to teach people that in order for you to be a real Christian, you need to not only believe in Jesus, but you also need to become a Jew. You need to go through circumcision and you need to go through a process by which you would become like a Jew and then you can add Jesus on top of, of that and then you would be a real Christian. So for us in this room, uh, I don't think too many of us woke up pondering whether or not circumcision uh, was going to make you right with God. That is not our issue. But I don't want you to miss out on what the heart of this letter is. What this church was doing very earnestly, and I think a lot of times we could be too harsh on them, what this letter was doing was addressing a group of people who were trying to answer three fundamental questions, questions that you and I try to answer every single day. Does God accept me? Does God approve of me? Does God love me? So this group of people were trying to answer these questions, and the way that they were filling in the blank was that, yes, God loves me if we do all of these things and we observe all of these uh, traditions. So they grew up believing that in order for the answer to these questions to be yes, they needed to go through a whole lot of this, um, these circumstances uh, and rituals like circumcision in order to do so. But I want to look at the two errors here in this text. The first one is kind of tucked in a little bit, and we're going to read it. Uh, so the first one is relativism. Relativism is because we're saved, we don't have to be good. Now, essentially what relativism is, is some form of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity essentially is this, adding Jesus to the life you have already chosen. So I have already chosen to live like this among these people to do this thing, and I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus on top of it, and it's going to make it blessed and holy. I'm saved, so it really doesn't matter what I do. Now, relativism is all about what you believe, and if you believe the right thing, then you're good no matter what. Now, some of this stuff is hard to see in our own lives, but it's really easy to see in other people's lives. Have you ever wondered how people can claim to love Jesus? And when you look back in the, the annals of history and you see that people would go to church on a Sunday morning and then go to a, a lynching right after service, they believed all of the doctrines about Christianity. They believed justification by faith. But the way they lived their life was deplorable because they believed that what they believed was all that mattered. And if they believed the right thing, that they were in good standing with God. Now, nobody here hopefully is going to, that's not your struggle, but it is a struggle for you to live in such a way that there are blind spots from your life keeping you from noticing glaring areas of behavior that are really foul to God and, and, what, and are offensive to the way that God has called us to live as people, ways of love, to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love others as ourselves. So the first couple of verses in here really truly talk about that. Um, here's what Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Jesus gave himself for our sins to do what? To rescue us from this 
present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want to be really clear here what Paul is saying. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this. Grace not only saves us from the penalties of sin, it also delivers us from the power of sin. The power of sin over your life that keeps us trapped and it makes us uh, really subject to obey it. So what Paul is basically saying here is the first error is to believe that it really, you're saved based on what you believe and it really doesn't matter what you do. And listen, you know, I talk to so many different people and I, I love, the thing I love the most about Renaissance is that we truly have people from every corner of life. We have people from every background, every faith experience you can think of. And so we get into a lot of very interesting conversations. And that honors me a great deal when people don't come from my faith tradition and have questions genuine about what it is that I believe and why I believe it. But one of the things I've realized over the years is that for a lot of people who really probably would lean towards relativism, what you're afraid of is, is being radical. Like you're afraid of being like this radical person who... In some ways, people kind of mock, like you're going way too hard. But think about it for a second. Like if it's true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that God came down in the person of Jesus and experienced the cross, the, nail, the crown of nails placed on his head, the beating, the flogging, mounting the hill and walking the hill towards his crucifixion, if he did that for you, isn't living a radical life of adoration the only thing that makes sense? The heart that relativists would miss is adoration. The goal of the gospel, the true gospel to produce in you is not just random behavior. It's an adoration. It's a well from which it will change everything about the way you live your life. There's a scripture in 1 Peter 2 and 11 where Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. What Peter is saying is this. Unfortunately, we have a present-day example of this right now with Russia invading Ukraine, and we see what Vladimir Putin is after. He is not merely after destruction. He is after loyalty. The reason they are spending so much money on these campaigns in Ukrainian to try to indoctrinate people is because they want the loyalty of Russia and Ukraine to serve him. What's Peter saying? The essence of what sin is trying to do is it's waging war against your soul, not just to destroy what you have in front of you, but so that your loyalty, your adoration will be taken away from God and placed on something else. And that is the greatest danger that, that I face, and that's the greatest danger that you face. So Paul says, Jesus gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. And when, when Paul talks about this present evil age, he talks about sin not as random decisions that people make, but as a system. So one of the best ways to understand this is like sin is like Jim Crow. Were there nice people in the Jim Crow South that did not adhere to uh, racism and, and systems? Probably. They were probably selected people. You can... I'm sure if you research history there, I'm, I'm sure some really nice people who resisted that. However, to live in the Jim Crow South meant that there was a system 
There were powers and principalities in place to keep things locked in place. So economically, physically, in the carceral system, everything, economically, everything was linked together to hold a certain people in a certain place. And what Paul is saying is this, the death of Jesus Christ destroyed not just, doesn't just give you the ability to think and to make better individual decisions, he destroys the system of sinful oppression on top of you. And so if Jesus Christ has done that, why would you go back? There's a really peculiar story in the, uh, about a slave in the early 1800s from the UK who wanted to go back to his master. And after he had been emancipated, he worked a year to, to pay his emancipation. And then he writes a letter to his master asking him to come back. And one of my friends, James Roberson, at the Bridge Church in Brooklyn said this, Sin does a great job of reminding you of its comforts, but blinds you of its bondage and chains. We remember the menu, but not the master. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this, and what Peter says and what the New Testament says in concert, is that to believe that what we do doesn't matter really truly misses out on the adoration that God is intending to develop in our lives and the loyalty that God wants to produce inside of us. That the reason that you would abstain from certain things is not just because this is right, this is wrong, that you turn into a robot trying to decide right and wrong, but you're trying to decide what is loyal to Jesus and what is disloyal to Jesus. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer. I must love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? A couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, marked 20 years since uh, one of my roommates and one of my best friends in college was murdered. And um, I remember, like it was yesterday, honestly, the night that we got the call. And I, I knew the people, I knew the dude who did it, and I knew the group of people that did it. And quite literally, the last 20 years, it has been an exercise in trying to not hate the people who were a part of it. And uh, I don't say that loosely. And over the years, I have, in my heart, rehearsed the gospel and tried to release the hatred that I have for them. And by God's grace, I think I'm doing that. But the last people you will ever see Jordan posted up with on Instagram are the people that killed my best friend. I can't rock with them. I can try to forgive them. I can release them of the debt because God has forgiven me, yes. But you're not going to see me smiling going to Six Flags with them. It's not all good. It's not all good. I think when we just pretend like what we do doesn't matter, it's like trying to go to Coney Island with the person that killed our best friend and just having a fun day relaxing. What Spurgeon says rips me up. I cannot trifle with the sin that killed my best friend. The, the hope of the gospel is to show us the depths to which Jesus Christ has come for you because he loves you. And his request to you is not a demand. It's an invitation for loyalty. 
And properly understood, the gospel would produce in us an adoration that would free us to love him with our whole hearts in such a way that we would love him and we would love others without reserve. And that is what the gospel is meant to produce in you. The other side of this is moralism. Moralism says we have to be good in order to be saved. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 1 and 6. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. I want you to, I'm going to highlight those words. God has called you not by the conditions in terms of an agreement, but he has called you by the grace of Christ. In our turning to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So this group of Jewish Christians were trying to make non-Jewish Christians start to observe the law and do things like get circumcised. And they were in essence saying, your belief in Jesus is not enough. You need to add your work to it. Moralism is a belief that if I really believe and I really, really work hard, then God one day might accept me. If I cross every T and dot every I, then maybe God will love and accept and embrace me. And here's a problem with moralism. You believe that the standard for being loved by God is meeting an obligation, and that's wrong. Now, what is moralism? Moralism is belief, this belief that if I do better, I am better. And although peop- these two groups of people would hate to be lumped together, please don't throw any tomatoes at me, whether you are a secular person or you're a religious person, there are moralists on every side of this conversation. Generally speaking, and, I'm, and I am generalizing, so please don't send me any angry emails. Uh, send those to Lester. <laughs> Generally speaking, secular people who are moralists are all about social ethics. So if you do not adhere to the social ethics, if you don't believe in climate change, if you do not uh, treat people in a certain way, then God can't love you because you are not upholding your end of the bargain. How could God love you? How could God have his favor on you? How could you go to heaven? And if you're not adhering to these social ethics, many of these things, which are very, very important, by the way, I'm not saying these things are not important. On the religious side, and again, I'm generalizing, these tend to be focused on personal ethics, tend to be circled around things like sex and alcohol and money and different things like this. And they make it so that unless you live your personal life in such a way, there's no way that God is going to rock with you. Now, How you live your life is very important. But the goal of the gospel is not for you to do better. The goal of the gospel is to see Jesus, who was slain for us, that that would give us a different motivation to live a life, not out of duty and obligation, but that it would allow you to see that you are his beloved. You know, um, my grandmother, years ago, when she was alive, we would go to her house in Queens and... Um, the first thing you had to do when you walk in grandma's house was to go to the living room and see her. And I, I don't even know how to describe what it felt like to walk into the living room. And with any other person on the planet, this would have been awkward. But with her, there would just be this like 10 seconds of uninterrupted eye contact where she would just say, I just got to take a look at you. And for like 10 seconds, 
you would just see this delight in her eyes. <clears throat> it didn't matter if you had a 4.0 or a 2.5. It didn't matter if you looked great or if you had gained some weight. It didn't matter if you got the job that you wanted to get or you were still looking for a job. You knew that you were her beloved. And she would look at you and say, not, you can't help it. You can't help it. You were her beloved. The goal of the gospel in Scripture is to say, oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. You are his beloved. The, gospel, the goal of the gospel is to let you see that you are his beloved, that God loved you and loves you, present tense. And it's not based on how good you've done today, because if it's based on how well you have done today, you could have done a better job. You always could have done a better job. So God is inviting us to see ourselves through the lens of the beloved. And the question I ask myself often is, how would the beloved behave? That is the heart of, of the gospel. And, you know, none of you, none of you are going to walk into work tomorrow and your boss grab you by the cheeks and say, you are my beloved. If they do, call HR because that's a violation. That's a professional relationship, and in professional relationships, what matters is how well you have performed. In personal relationships, what matters is who are you to the other person? Who are you to God? And what Paul was doing essentially was saying this, if you add obligation to who you are to God, you have perverted the gospel. It ceases to be the beloved story of what God has done for you because he loves you, and you've turned it to a work relationship, and that is not the gospel. Here's why you need this, and here's why I need this. Because you and I need to live a life that honors what the gospel is. We don't need to live a self-defeated life that's cons consequently and always beating ourselves up for what we have done or, or not done. The gospel is big enough to handle all of your immaturity, all of your sins. The cross did it all, past, present, and future. Jesus erased the certificate of debt that was held against you. You know, years ago, uh, my wife and I went out dancing, and this was before we had kids, when I could stay up past 10 o'clock and not be miserable the next day. And um, we went out with her friends, uh, a couple, they were living in New York at the time. And we get to the place, and there's a long line. And I don't really love lines, but I wasn't going to do anything about it. I was just going to stand there and complain. Uh, her friend whips out a black card and was like, I'm not waiting in this line. I'm like, yeah, we're not waiting in this line. <laughs> For the uninitiated, a black card is like this card from American Express that like, you can't ask them about it. They have to contact you to offer it to you. It has no limit on its spending. You can walk into a Porsche dealership and just say, the red one, I'll take it, and they'll give it to you. You can just swipe your black card. That's how like, expansive it is. As he was walking to the front of the line, my wife was like, well, I was like, baby, let him cook. Let him, the man is on a mission. Let him do what he's going to do. Now, that night, I did not even think about taking my wallet out of my pocket. What is my little Chase debit card going to do on top of his black card? The bill came out. I was like, yeah, baby, we chilling tonight, man. It's good. When we try to add our little moral behavior on top of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, 
We're trying to add our little city, <laughs> our little prepaid vanilla Visa debt card, gift card, <laughs> on top of a black card. It just looks foolish. Here's what Paul Miller says. <laughs> Here's what Paul Miller says about the gospel and the cross and the power of it and why you should never live to be a moralist. He says, in reality, we are making a mockery of the cross by not going back to it. Isn't the blood of Jesus powerful enough to handle repeated offenses? The power over that sin is received at the foot of the cross. We're making a mockery of the cross and what Jesus has done when we're trying to add our little righteousness on top of it. You can't add to Jesus' righteousness without taking away from it and insulting it. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he said it is finished because it was finished. Not that he was finished in your life. Not that he was finished by not calling you and, uh, to live uh, a life that honors him, but that it was finished. Sin was finished. Now, a quick word to those in this room who are um, struggling um, with something in your life that you, you're kind of beating yourself up because you feel like you're stuck. And as we talked about relativism and cultural Christianity, you might even be wondering, am I even a Christian if I'm not able to live this beautiful, victorious life of adoration, cherishing Jesus? I want to say this thing very clearly. The discomfort you feel is a sign that the Holy Spirit is active in your life at this very moment, who is making you uncomfortable in the life that you're living. And one of the things that I would take great encouragement by is that you're unsettled and you're discouraged and you're upset by patterns or sin in your life that you can't seem to shake. That is the Holy Spirit producing inside of you that discomfort. Here's what it says in Philippians 2. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work out his will. It is God working in you both to will to give you the desire to do better. That is God. So hold on to that and don't let any shame or uh, beating yourself up overcome. But brothers and sisters, we need the gospel to, to save us. We need the gospel to encourage us. We need the gospel to motivate us. We need the gospel to grow us. This is not just a message for someone who is brand new to Christianity, although certainly for you. It's a message for all of us. So for those of you in this room who are struggling to forgive yourself, I hope that you will see Jesus on the cross, and him saying, it is finished. And you've been trying to save yourself with your own efforts. You've been wallowing in discouragement and shame because you have yet to truly embrace what he has said. You know, one of my friends, John Stark at Apostles Church, he said something in a podcast this week that really, really encouraged me. His method of reading scripture, he says, is to allow Jesus to contradict his beliefs about himself. So to read a story about Jesus with the woman at the well or Jesus in one of the Gospels and allow Jesus to contradict what you believe about God or about yourself. So if you believe that God is ashamed of you, read what it says in the Gospel and then ask yourself the question, what does this passage teach me about God? And then, then subsequently, what does that teach me about myself and how I should view myself? For those of you struggling to forgive someone else, and Lord knows it is a very difficult thing to forgive people. I'm not saying forget what they did and let them back into your life with no boundaries. But for those of you who truly, genuinely struggle to forgive people, 
I hope that you recover the gospel. I hope that you get a picture of the depth to which God loves sinners. God is in search of those who are active sinners. Jesus says, I did not come to call the healthy, but the the sick towards repentance. And that instead of judgment, it will be some prayer that you would pray for them. You would pray for the people who disgust you. And rooted in the gospel that God's heart and God's hope is for even them to come to repentance. And here's a really big one. For those of you who are suffering with disappointment and unfulfilled desires, uh, Lord knows you've had a list of things that you wanted God to do in your life by this point, and it hasn't happened. Maybe you're going through a season of suffering right now. You and I need the gospel that lets us know that because God loves us, he is active in our life and he is calling us higher. And that what I find in my own life is that sometimes when I'm going through a really hard time or when God doesn't answer my prayer, I think God is out to get me. I'm like, God, if I would have done this, then you would have done that. And there's so many people who struggle not just with their situation, but with faith in God, because in some ways, we make our relationship with God to be transactional. The gospel throws away the transaction and says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He gave us his best when we were at our worst. Now, that doesn't answer your question about why you don't have what you want to have. That doesn't answer the question of human suffering, but it does take the judgment away from it, and it allows us to walk with Jesus long enough to figure it out in our lives. And so I want to give us an invitation. For those of you in this room who you're newer to faith or you went to church growing up and you came back 10 years later, I want to give you two ways. I would love for you, for those of you who have not already placed your faith in Christ, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? Well, we have a number of leaders and people at Renaissance who would love to talk to you about what your next step of faith is. And you can do that in two ways. After service, you can come and talk to someone in the prayer team. They would love to walk you through what that looks like. Uh, take your next step. You're not, um, it wouldn't, we're just starting the conversation right now. But I don't want you to walk away if you feel like God is tugging at your heart to not have the opportunity to do that. For those of you who don't necessarily want the personal interaction today, I would love for you to text the word Harlem to 94000, and you'll get that connection card. Now, on the connection card, there's a box to check for baptism. And by checking that box, all that's doing is putting you in our queue so that a pastor will reach out to you to start this conversation about what your next step of faith is. It's not to make sure that you're getting baptized next Sunday. So this is just to put you in our process queue, and this is the best way we know how to do it right now. Uh, And for those of you who have already placed your faith in Christ, uh, today we get a chance to take communion. And communion is this sacrament that Jesus instituted 2,000 years ago, and it's meant to remind us of the true gospel, the new covenant of what Jesus has come to do and what he has done and accomplished in his person. Now, I grew up in an old school church that taught that, um, you know, Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. It was like, it was kind of weak, or Jesus turned water into grape juice. And it's like, no, they drank wine, real wine. And when you do that, it waters down also what Jesus is meaning to say about communion. When people took communion in Jesus's day, when he served them communion, the wine, it was strong. Now, I know nobody in this room has ever had a strong drink, so let me describe it, what it feels like. (laughs) Your first sip of a strong drink, you feel it like burning in your chest on the way down. And what Jesus was saying is when he told people to drink of this cup, they would experience a physical reaction of burning. And what Jesus was basically saying is, I want you to feel my forgiveness as powerfully and as physically as you are experiencing this wine going down your chest right now. 
And so we don't have wine. We got grape juice. But I want us to rehearse that the reason you are God's beloved is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And he has established a new covenant for us in his blood, by his body, on the cross. And there is not one thing you can add to it. And today, as we take communion together as a family, I want you to rehearse that. And I want you to lay down your self-righteousness and pick up his righteousness instead.